Welcome to the June episode of the Microbiology Lab Pod. My name is Johan Bengtsson Palme, and I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Infectious Diseases at the University of Gothenburg. Today, we will talk a bit about Emil's master thesis on disturbances in microbial communities, which he presented earlier this month. We will also discuss the coronavirus, for which the picture is slowly becoming more clear. And we will dedicate a section of this pod today to talk about the, a potential explanation to the gender differences seen in COVID-19 severity. And we will also discuss the immune response to COVID-19. Furthermore, we'll take a look at the strain distributions of this novel coronavirus and what those strain distributions can tell us about its early emergence and spread globally. After that, we will make a jump and discuss the diversity of the lung microbiota in cystic fibrosis and its impact on disease outcomes. Uh, and finally, we will make a jump and look at whether more or less antibiotics uh, for treatment is suitable for avoiding resistance development. Maybe less is more for antibiotics as well. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Uh, so before we get to talk science, I'd like to say that we're recording this on Thursday, June 25th. And here with me to discuss today are Anna Abramova, who is a postdoc in the lab, uh, working in the Embark program, specifically looking at monitoring antimicrobial resistance in the environment. Hi, Anna. How are you doing? Hi. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you spending your days right now? I mean, we've been having quite nice weather in Sweden over the past month or so. So maybe working at home hasn't been that terrible? No, should admit it's quite nice. <laughs> One can sit on the terrace and read articles. It's really, uh, really nice working from home these days. <laughs> yeah, I, I had this realization during a remote dissertation a couple of weeks ago uh, that it's actually a lot nicer sitting in your garden, drinking coffee and listening to someone talking about their science uh, than being in a crowded room which is getting at this time of year quite hot. Uh, so there's definitely upsides to remote working as well. I also joined by Havi Lakunchi, who is a master student in the lab and uh, doing work on antibiotic resistance in Pseudomonas aegrinosa. Uh, hi Havila, how are you doing? Hello, Johan. I'm good today. That's great. How are you doing? I'm doing fine too. I mean, it's warm today, but I guess that's the case for all of us. Even if we're working remotely, mm. we're in, like the same part of Sweden, so. And finally, I'm also joined by a uh, recently defended master student, Emil Burman, uh, who we will talk a little bit more about your work on microbial communities and disturbances in a minute. Uh, hi, Emil. Hello, Johan. All good on your side? Yeah, I'm, I'm really good, actually. It's been nice now, the, a couple of weeks of, uh, of the lab work and all the writing stuff. So I'm feeling very refreshed and ready to, to tackle on more science. Yeah, it must it must be weird. Like after after all of these months working <laughs> essentially seven days a week, suddenly not working at all yeah. for a couple of weeks. It must have been a big transition. Yeah, the first week was horrible. Actually, I felt like almost lost. Like well, I need to do something. What am I doing with my life? Why am I just sitting here? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but 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 as my. Uh, what do you say? Vacation weeks went uh, proceeded. I I got the experience to just let that that feeling go and just relax. That's awesome. Um, so we're gonna talk quite a lot about COVID nineteen later in this podcast, but let's just briefly touch upon the global coronavirus response and mitigation strategies. Um, 
In your mind, what do you think have worked and what has not worked so far in terms of the coronavirus response? Let's start in your end, Emil. You've been having several weeks to dwell into this if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I mean, if I'm just talking on a, uh, on a what do you say, a, a, a broader level, uh, I think that the idea of having individual responsibilities and uh, allowing that uh, uh, that companies and corporations themselves set the guidelines might be so for example uh, currently right now i'm at my my, my family's hostel out in uh, outside of jungschile uh, and uh, here there the regulations are recommended to just have one meter apart between each individual uh, uh, what do you say uh, individual person uh, compared to uh, as we uh, as it is in Gothenburg, uh, which is one and a half meters, but the world, uh, but the real uh, published results is that you need to have at least two meters between each person, and I think that each step that you just make it up to uh, to the individual corporations themselves will just sweep under, and we will reduce that uh, that decision's efficacy by just diluting the step. It's the it's the um, yeah, the dilution of effect for each step. I think that is really bad. Uh, but if you're looking at, uh, for example, on a more broader level, I think that uh, the cooperation that uh, at least we here in Sweden have had between uh, the individual regions has been really good. Uh, for example, we have had a, a large outbreak of the coronavirus right now in the northern parts of Sweden where we have a lot of miners uh, and a lot of uh, iron mines. And... Um, uh, understandably that particular location in Sweden is not very highly populated so they don't have a huge hospital uh, infrastructure but there has been a large uh, allocation of uh, sick individuals from those hospitals to both like Stockholm but also to Luleå and also other hospitals around the world because they didn't have the capacity to actually take care of them and I think that is actually really difficult uh, and uh, bravo to those uh, to those uh, organizations involved there. I guess it's also a bit of a, I mean, it's a it's a big log- logistic uh, it's a big logistic is- issue also in normal times uh, to transport patients around. And I guess that's exactly. also it sort of feeds into the the, the, the larger context around uh, vacation travel as well. Mm. In my mind, I mean, it's. It's getting quite clear now that in the short run, the Swedish strategy itself has not been as efficient as the Danish and the Norwegian suppression strategy. At the same time, it has not been disastrous. I mean, it's it's really it really have, has been walking this kind of middle line, and I think. The short-term consequences of that are now being quite obvious, and it's hard to dispute that Sweden has had more deaths and probably also uh, more cases, although the, the reported number of cases, you, I wouldn't put any trust in that data, actually. But judging from the deaths and the hospitalizations, we see that we have more cases in Sweden than in our neighboring countries, and I think that's an undisputable fact at this point. Then the reasons for that might not only be um, different mitigation strategies. It might also be that Sweden actually had more cases to begin with when the lockdown started, which I think is actually quite clear if you look at the uh, deaths data, that Sweden had more deaths three weeks after the lockdown started than any of our neighboring countries, and especially Finland. And Finland is like the country that has 
the the least deaths overall of the Nordic countries, maybe say Iceland. Um, so I think I think there is something too that there was also bad luck involved in this. Um, but it's also so at this point it's also like impossible to only explain it away by by bad luck. Um, the, the the interesting continued discussion in my mind is sort of what happens far down the line. Uh, and I think for me, the first point where you can start making a more long-term assessment of if the Swedish strategy has been efficient sort of comes in like November, December this year, when we have seen if there's a second wave of the virus and how that affects other countries that took much stricter measurements. When we know if there had to be repeated lockdowns uh, in different places in Europe and whether whether Sweden avoided that so that we could keep our society more or less open. And I mean, those things are impossible to predict right now. So I think it's too early to make a complete assessment of that. What has this meant in terms of public health in general? Uh, because that also related to um, things like domestic violence and um, depression and impact on the economy. And that will be hard to assess in the short run. And I, I think that's something that we should remember when we discuss strategies that at the moment, we're just looking very narrowly at COVID-19 deaths and COVID-19 cases. But public health as such, is much a, it's a much bigger question. And it, I think from my perspective, I've been, I've been mildly positive to the Swedish response overall <laughs> through most of this time. But I think that from someone coming from that camp must also be open to reassess uh, that okay now we have the long-term data and we should not do this again if this is and if this happens again does any one of you who have like parents elsewhere have different uh different opinions on this um it's good that uh, sweden is doing good at least uh per statistics but seeing that uh coming from my home country india they have been like been locked down for like four months in continuation and then they have released all the lockdown for now because of economy and other reasons and things can't really work without that and now i see like huge number of increase and that really scares me <laughs> having family there and seeing that and right now it's in like in the fourth position and i'm like oh god <laughs> no please work so yeah and also one more thing is like, uh, it's like highly populated country. So that also comes as another factor. Yeah. It's hard. With, with big economic, uh -huh. uh, economic yeah. differences as well. So I guess yeah. that also plays in that you can, you can have measurements that work well for mm -hmm. uh, the upper exactly. middle class, for example. But then, mm -hmm. then you have a lot of poor people that yeah, just can't sure. take those measures. Um, which is, to be honest, that's also mm -hmm. the case in Brazil. It's just that that could have been handled differently in Brazil. Yeah, one thing that I also heard that was at, in the beginning when this outbreak was uh, was uh, what do you say spreading uh, was that one factor that almost no one really talked about was that they were talking about like very well populated countries, but not exactly how dense like the population density inside each of that countries. Because if you yeah. look at, for example, yeah, I'm just going to take the US for example. If you compare the 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 outbreak in New York compared to like 
I don't know, uh, Washington or something, Washington State. The, 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 there's completely different levels of magnitude of a problem in those two areas that you need to take account because people are just more passively closer to each other. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I also think one thing that we as Europeans are bad at recognizing when it comes to the United States is that basically the states operate as different countries in the European Union. Um, so when we separate out Italy and Spain and Sweden from each other, we should probably do the same thing looking at the New York State, uh, Wisconsin, California, yeah. Washington, because they are geographically very far apart and culturally quite different. Um, so it makes sense to look at it not as a... Um, federation level but at the, at the state level and i think probably that's true for china and india as well yeah i would imagine i think you're right i mean we have to be more local local at these issues and actually it's that's true also when you look at the swedish statistics uh, a lot of the swedish wave or whatever you would call it came from stockholm yeah. stockholm had more than half of the cases for a long time for a long time uh, while here at the west coast there was a long time where basically nothing happened. And now we see a rise on the West Coast, or at least a potential rise on the West Coast. Then, of course, I'm, I'm surprised that we haven't seen like a big, big uptick in Sweden of cases, because uh, my feeling is that as soon as it got warm, everybody just forgot about the coronavirus, especially when the Black Lives Matter protests that came at the same time. And then if, if it's warm and people are protesting, of course, the focus is moved somewhere else. Yeah. And I, I can just go down to the to our local beach here and see that. I mean, we've we have it looks like a normal summer day. Yeah. Uh, there is like fifty families with kids there, um, and probably probably I mean it's outdoors and probably people won't go there if they are sick. I hope at least, but still, <laughs> it doesn't really look like social distancing at this point. So to some some part of me is surprised that we're not seeing a bigger increase in cases. Yeah, but I mean, it appears that the virus is uh, somewhat susceptible to UV radiation. So, uh, of course, that doesn't mean that the person-to-person -person, uh, uh, contamination between and spread of disease will affect, be affected that hard, but specifically surface and fomite spread will be reduced uh, if during the summer, I would imagine. I've heard about another problem they experience now in office space. I mean, now it's really hot here in Sweden, it's like up to 30 degrees. So it gets really hot inside offices as well. And the problem is uh, now we cannot use any conditioning system because that's where the virus sort of gets and spreads all over the building. And I've also seen that yeah. the, the air conditioners are like perfect aerosolizers as well. So if you just have a droplet, yeah. you can uh, just really aerosolize the thing really easily. <laughs> so yeah. Actually, that's an interesting that's actually an interesting thought because I, I know that there have been these reports of that warmer weather don't doesn't really affect the spread of the coronavirus. But maybe there's actually two different effects taking each other out here. I mean, warmer weather, people use air conditioners more. And if that's a way for the virus to spread, maybe that sort of cancels the effect of warmer weather out. And then maybe Sweden is a good counterexample because we, we don't use a lot of air conditioners because normally we don't get that hot in the summer. Yeah. Uh, so this could actually be an interesting thought, although I think we're just uninformedly <laughs> speculating. Yeah, <here>. of course. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that's, that was an interesting discussion. Uh, I think it's time for us to move ahead with our scientific agenda. And first on that scientific agenda is uh, your thesis, Emil. So first I would like to congratulate you um, on a very nice thesis. Thank you. Uh, Emil presented his mother thesis um, a couple of weeks ago in early June. Uh, and I think you essentially you collected top grades yes. across the across the board. Yes. Uh, so congratulations. How do you feel? I feel very good actually. Uh, I was uh, as I believe many of the many a student who are very anxious before they get the results. Uh, I was uh, very anxious that I was that I, that I it was like at the limit like okay maybe I will pass <laughs> maybe I will just about pass this this particular thesis because you, it's so easy to be critical of your own work uh, but uh, when I got it I was almost ecstatic I uh, went over to my friend I uh, hugged him very closely and uh, I was very happy so uh, let's start in this end. And what is it? What is your thesis about? What has your project been been doing? And can you sort of like lay it out in very overarching terms? Sure. Uh, so my thesis was about the invasion of the model microbial communities, uh, and the basic idea was to use uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a a, an opportunistic pathogen that is very highly associated in cystic fibrosis to invade the model microbial community of Thor. However, as I did my experiments, my scope uh, expanded, but that was the original idea. The scope of the thesis expanded. So what happened? Why, why did your thesis expand? <laughs> So my thesis was based on Thor, which is the, the hitchhiker of the rhizosphere, which was published in, I think it was 2019. And uh, they uh, published this uh, modern microbial community for easy, uh, easy investigation of, uh, genetic inter of uh, interactors with this particular community. So what I did is that I, I did analysis of the community where I looked at the amount of biofilm that was produced by the community. Uh, so this community has this very interesting uh, property, which, which is called an emergent property of biofilm production. The biofilm produced by just one member uh, is lower than two members, and two members is lower than three members. And so the, there's a gradual increase of biofilm if you add more and more members. So that means that disruption of any of the members will be reflected uh, in the amount of biofilm produced. So what I did at the beginning of my thesis is that I just wanted to check this particular property to ensure that it was working as described. However, after many, many tries, I was not consistently able to get that property to work. And I banged my head against the wall for so long and I just couldn't figure it out until almost like a, a, a ray of sunshine just almost like washed over my plate and I just like, ah, heat, heat must be the idea why this doesn't work. So I set up an additional experiment where, um, uh, where I controlled for heat uh, with incubation in regards to incubation temperature. Uh, with this particular model of microbial community. And I got that to work, finally, I got it to work after I controlled for temperature. 
I, I just want to double check here. You're not over exaggerating this. Story no, no, of course. Not. <laughs> sounds a little bit too good to be true. Almost like the story May- with Newton on the apple. Maybe I'm uh, I'm adding a bit of an artistic flair. It's my story, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of those. It's one of those like this story has a true origin, <laughs> and, and then it's like told over and over again in different podcasts and everything. And at the end, it's like I was hit by a sunbeam. <laughs> Uh, going back to the invasion results mm-hmm. here, um, do you do you pick anything up? I mean, what was the purpose of doing this invasion yeah. screening in the first place? Yeah, so we just wanted we wanted to find if we could find any single knockout genes that affected invasion efficiency of Pseudomonas in this modern microbial community. Uh, and during my analysis, I got two main hits. So these these hits that you get here, um, do you feel like I mean the the setting you have here is not a clinical setting no, at all, no. but do you feel like they would be like translatable results clinically or is there yeah. clinical implications yeah. uh, for this? I would actually believe so. Yeah, but what you've done here is that you've studied something under invasion. Yes. Uh, invasion of a bacterial community. So what's the what's the human health implication of that? Oh, uh, so uh, you can use... So invasion is, very, uh, is a very common... A way that pathogens actually as, uh, insert themselves into the human microbiota, both in, for example, in lungs, in, in the case of cystic fibrosis, uh, and but also in the gut, uh, in terms of uh, like uh, Clostridium difficile infections, and um, I think I believe that Salmonella also does that, uh, that it uh, invades the biofilm of the gut as well. So it's very common uh, mechanism that uh, that is mostly essential for the first step of actually uh, causing infection once it enters so, the human host. You have to be very clear here. When you, when you say invasion here, you mean invasion in a more ecological yes, sense. I, yes, uh, ex- exactly. I do not uh, mean invasion in the tissue. I mean invasion as the ecological term, uh, which is defined as uh, uh, the occupation of an already established niche. Yeah, okay, so you're essentially fending your way into an environment and being able to compete with the other bacteria yes, exactly. that are living there. Exactly. Yeah. Having discussed that there are clinical implications of this, I mean, how much of a threat is this? I mean, should we be concerned about these findings from a human health point of view or maybe from an environmental health point of view? I, I won't say that it's not important, but it's, I think that there are more pressing uh, findings uh, that we need to prioritize. So, for example, I think that as a... As a as a uh, community of microbiologists, I think we need to prioritize antibiotic resistance before we need to address the potential invasion factors. We can, for example, uh, use the uh, invasion mechanisms as described, for example, for drug manufacturing in order to reduce, uh, let's, let's say, clostridium infections. But it's not as important uh, as a medical uh, priority compared to antibiotic resistance, I would say. Where are you going next with these results? What are your what are your plans? Is, or is this the end of this invasion study? Oh, oh no, we're going to con- uh, continue doing. We have uh, well, I mean, uh, we have additional genes that we want to analyze that are poten- that could be potential hits or they couldn't be. So we want to further analyze more uh, single knockout genes. And very nice. And where are you going? I mean, you finished your thesis. Yeah. So uh, the, I will really I will be returning to uh, to the Bainton Palmer lab to as a research assistant, and continue on uh, with this innovation project and continue doing work.
So again, congratulations on a great thesis, Emil. Thank you. Uh, I think you've been doing really great work. Um, I've been very happy working with you for this year. Me too. Uh, and uh, good luck with your future work as well, which is essentially wishing myself good luck <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs>
as well as they performed uh, RNA interference knockout of androgen receptor. So what they observed is that indeed both um, angiotensine converting enzyme 2 as well as co-receptors, they are down-regulated when uh, androgen receptor is knocked out. So all these together brought them to think that that might be the reason why it's mostly men that are affected severely by COVID-19. And to further support this hypothesis, they looked at the, um, at the collection of clinical data, both from Yale New Haven Hospital, as well as from UK Biobank. And by analyzing the data, they observed that there is a significant link between free androgen index and the severity of COVID-19 infection in men. So this is pretty interesting results, suggesting like providing first key insights into the regulation of ACE2, as well as they, they provide strong molecular and clinical evidence for the role of the androgen signaling in the regulation of the COVID-19 infections and also provide um, potential therapeutic candidates for the treatment of the COVID-19. This is a really cool paper. It, I mean, it's a, it has a very, it's, it's a very concise paper in the, in the sense that they investigate a quite specific question. And at the same time, I like that they started quite broadly and do this kind of drug screen uh, to come to this conclusion. Uh, it also has a potential explanation to why men are in general more severely affected by COVID-19 yeah. and like connects that to, um, to um, sex-specific hormones. I, th I think there's a lot of nice things to do study. This is a preprint. I don't know if you've seen any comments on it or any like published version of this because it came out in mid-May, I think. No, I have seen... I have seen it cited in other um, like uh, news releases, uh, but I haven't seen that it was published yet. No, I mean, I I'm not the person to judge it, but I think it's it, it. I think it seems solid and it seems reasonable. So, from that perspective, I don't I have I don't have any specific uh, reason to doubt their findings. I'm just saying that uh, since there actually been some time, it could it could have been that someone had commented on it and. Mm -hmm rebuked part of it or supported it further yeah i think also one of the um, uh, very uh, interesting findings in terms of treatment the covid 19 is that the most two potent drugs that they identified as targets is uh, finasteride and uh, dutasteride and they are actually already actively uh, like generally they are prescribed in treatment to reduce androgen or um, uh, for instance, by tr treating the enlarged prostate and uh, yeah, related diseases. So they are, there is a potential to just redirect they are, their implication in treating COVID patients yeah. because they are approved. I think, I think the big trouble with that is just that there's no animal testing and no clinical trials or anything in this paper. But I mean, as suggested candidates for further investigation, it's a, it's a great paper. Uh, so, uh, first you were mentioning like potential uh, like chemicals that were uh, induced. By, you were mentioning IL six uh, for uh, as a potential downstream uh, effect for uh, the treatment. It was that correct? Uh, I think it's one of the proteins they identified where networks uh, intercepted. So, it's mm. so, so could you could you do, do you 
do you know what IL six actually does? Well, <laughs> no, now my old uh, immunology professor is going to murder me. But yeah, well, the only things that I know it's interleukin six, and it is involved. Um, yeah, it's one of the components also involved in this uh, cytokine storm. Yeah. Um, and re yeah, immune response to COVID nineteen. So. In yeah, because that would be very interesting if uh, if because if IL six gets inhibited, because yeah. then maybe now 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 I don't really know, but maybe that could be like uh, the recruitment of like T Rex or something uh, that then that in of itself could lead to a more uh, stronger response from the cytokine storm. Uh, so maybe if that was somehow uh, inhibited just just pure chemically instead of doing this other work around you could get a stronger effect that could maybe be more efficacious uh, than doing this sex treatment uh, sex, uh, sex hormone treatment yeah i i the, the authors of this paper do not look at this in particular oh, yeah, yeah, but sure. it seems like since both of these genes are proteins are targets for these drugs then yeah it probably yeah. would work uh, so uh, I also wondered another thing. Uh, mm. Now maybe the 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 physicians here are going to be a bit more sp specifically the pulmon the the pulmonologists. But ACE two is that an essential uh, protein? Uh, I know that it is expressed in many um, tissues like uh, lungs and yeah. uh, heart and intestines. Yeah, and, I also know testes as well. I know. Yeah, and uh, involved in, for instance, regulation of blood pressure, and I think quite other important functions. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of of course, if we, and if because I was just speculating a bit widely here, if you. If you have a drug that could just completely inhibit ACE2, and you just have that for, I don't know how long a virus could, the virus could survive inside the body without proliferating, but let's say a week, uh, then you would just clear the virus, right? Uh, if that was the case, if you could just prevent it from actually entering a cells. Yeah, I have uh, more discussion on that, but I guess oh. <laughs> maybe we can talk more about it in my paper. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, maybe then I will leave it to that. Maybe we, unless maybe Emil has more questions, of course. So maybe <laughs> that was actually my final question. Okay, so then maybe that's a very good segue into uh, into our next paper, which describes the immune responses to COVID nineteen, uh, which we are also starting to get a better picture of. Uh, Havila, what do you have to say about this? Uh, this is really a huge paper, so it has been really. A um, big task for me to like shorten it, if I can say that. <laughs> it's a quite dense paper. I, I, yeah. I skimmed it myself. And it's, a, so, it's dense. It's yeah. a lot of information. So, picking the most important point has felt like, oh God, it's hard, but I'll do my best. So, this paper is Early Insights into Immune Response During COVID 19 by Ashley and Abai, uh, published on June 8th in the Journal of Immunology. As we all know, like COVID-19 is caused by SARS-CoV-2 and it's declared as a pandemic. Uh, as of now, there are like no intervention strategies to treat or prevent it. And this paper really discusses about the earliest knowledge on the how the immune system works and also the mechanisms of immune pathology in the lung, in the acute infections, as well as in the later stages. And COVID-19 being the type of beta coronaviruses, which is a single strand RNA virus, positive sense and envelope. Coming to the signs, symptoms and transmission, 
covid 19 has uh, similar uh, initial symptoms like other respiratory viral infections but the most common symptoms that are like known to everybody is like fever cough muscle aches sore throat and chest pain the covid 19 patients uh, lung organ has like uh, larger lesions than any other influence influenza patients and it increases with time like with poor the patients with poor prognosis have like extensive uh, lesions in children like in china like there are no rarely experienced severe disease but once after it has spread to us and european countries like there are few cases that are seen like there are small minority of children which have developed like severe respiratory diseases and hyperinflammatory diseases and some uh, multi system inflammatory disease that is msc which can include uh, multiple organ failure and high rates of shock so the median incubation period of this virus is 5 days and for it to reach a peak transmission is like uh, before the 5 days of the incubation and for the immune system to work that is like to show a uh, fever it takes like 4 uh, days and it lasts up to like 3 weeks and 50% of the patients will zero convert against the virus by day 5 zero conversion is a process like to generate antibodies against any foreign particle like in this case this virus and 100% of zero conversion happens by day 14 which i guess they have a quarantine period for any infected patient as 14 days and also like uh, after this 14 days usually most clinical symptoms will resolve but in some patients they will uh, develop severe diseases characterized by ards that is acute respiratory distress syndrome which usually requires ventilation coming to the proposed mechanisms of immune pathology in lung as of now like in cellular level sars usually uh, infects the epithelial cells lining the airways sars has a protein uh, or spike called as s and our human lungs has this uh, angiotensin in uh, converting enzyme ace2 these receptors are present on the lung and they usually are uh, present on in abundance on lung cells these proteins are usually important for enzymatic functions influencing blood flow to organs like lungs heart and kidneys research is being now done with uh, mice where they can uh, um, induce human ace2 alleles so that it can bind to the uh, spike of coronavirus so that it doesn't really combine with ace2 on human lung this is a promising model for vaccine and drug testing but there are still work going on on this and there is like no confirmation yet and coming to the hallmarks of systemic uh, covid-19 immunity and disease as of now there is observed like altered coagulation which is a major factor in severe patients and uh, it usually infects the secondary lymphoid organs causing the uh, lymphopenia and also viral antigens are observed in macrophages in human spleen and in the patients with severe uh, diseases like after post mortem they have found like it is because of necrosis and apoptotic lymphocytes and there is also one more statement statement here like men are more susceptible to severe diseases than women and here it is stated like uh, not yet understood due to uh, we never know the factors but after listening to anna's paper i got an idea okay 
what would be the potential reason for this some people after the recovery like after hospital discharge they are observed to have reduced number of lymphocytes and some have like their uh, immune cells have been returned to their normal position and there are like there has been observed like uh, cd4 and cd8 t cells converted the memory cells even though they are low in number they have been like uh, grown into their original count and also their ability to produce uh, interferon gamma which is responsible for innate and adaptive immunity is also found and also the biomarkers of inflammation persist elevated levels after recovery and they concluded by saying that immune response are really essential to understand the infection clearance and also the immunological memory where we can develop vaccines by understanding the phenotype and the specificity of immunity so that it is not only capable of protecting but also can uh, help us without inducing immune pathology that's a that's a load of, of oh information um, it still is there i have tried to like reduce it a lot but. yeah but i mean it's it's also that's also reflects that we're actually starting to understand this virus i shouldn't say well but mm-hmm. to a much much larger extent than we did a couple of months ago um and i think it's actually interesting to read this paper also just because of the referencing because you see how many preprints they mm-hmm. they reference so it's really it's oh, really God, one of those yeah. cases where you see science moving in real time and mm-hmm. i bet a few of the things that they write in this paper are going, are going to be shown to be wrong in a year uh, but <laughs> the vast majority are probably going to be right yeah is there in anyone in any one of you's opinion is there any in anything in this paper that is controversial really i i think it's a pretty good summary of the knowledge although i haven't followed it perfectly over the last couple of months well, I mean, controversial might not be the correct word, but I mean, it, I think it's still think it's kind of weird why we use nasopharyngeal load as a uh, viral load as mm-hmm. a proxy for uh, the amount of virus in the lungs. Because why wouldn't we just take like sputum or some other like lung biopsy or something like that? Because it feels like it's so, so far away. And so isn't that just because it's quite complicated to get that. I mean, then you have to get something down into the lungs and take samples, and that's going to be complicated at a large scale. Yeah, sure, on a larger scale, but if you want to know the... Uh, the because they, the, the figure that they showed, right, was, uh, I think, I believe it was figure two. Uh, they showed mm-hmm. uh, nasopharyngeal load viral RNA and the IgG mm-hmm. antibody concentration in, uh, in inside of the human. Like, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be better to relate that particular correlation to viral load in the lungs instead i guess um but with the uh i mean i think it's interesting the interesting thing here is that i think you're you're thinking a lot like a scientist now. <laughs> uh, like that would be the more precise measure but at the same time um everything here has been moving so quickly yeah so i don't think there have been a lot of like controlled studies where they compare nasopharyngeal samples to actual lung tissue samples yeah. and things like that so, yeah that is true. They even state that, like, as of now, whatever the data they have, they have uh, taken as input, but still, like, it will change with time. You would like to see a comparison study that where you actually saw how those two measures, the nasopharyngeal load and the lung load, mm-hmm. are actually corresponding to each other. But to actually to jump back a little bit to the discussion you had about antibiotic resistance version invasion, that seems like more of a scientific curiosity 
and not so much of the IQ to research need in this phase. Yeah, exactly. Talking about scientific curiosity, this paper also mentioned that taste and smell uh, can, what it says, yeah, there may also be disturbance mm. in taste and smell perception. Yeah. Have you read anything about this? What is the mechanism? Uh, they didn't really uh, state about the mechanism, but they just have stated like there will be like taste and smell differences for those who have been like infected. I think I haven't really read a scientific paper on this, but I've been following <laughs> newspaper coverage and similar on, on the topic of losing smell. It was a big thing in the New York Times a couple of months ago as a new, as a new way of detecting COVID-19 patients and separating them from uh, influenza patients, for example. And I think the speculated mechanism is that you get viral infection in the nasopharyngeal tract and that that infection causes these cells to temporarily lose um, the ability to detect uh, to detect smell. I think if uh, the, the effect range of this is actually pretty big. So you have people who have, you have stories of people who have essentially lost their entire sense of taste and smell. Yeah. And then you have people who have, who have had like a decreased sense of taste and, or a decreased sense of smell. And that's also pretty natural given that this virus seemed to be causing infections that are very, of very different severity and of and also with very different symptoms. But one way that you could really distinguish COVID-19 from influenza is really, that it seems to be this thing that if you lose smell, then you should probably get a test. I mean, this also usually happens like people suffering with a normal cold. They also have this uh, smell and taste differences that they can't really smell anything. Um, yeah, but I guess... Isn't that isn't that partially because you also get like um, <laughs> snotty, you get clogging, uh, and I think the the thing with COVID nineteen is that you usually you lose your smell without having a running nose, which is a which is the weird combination there. But they also state that they have running nose. Oh, they do. Okay, but is that yeah, the same patient though? Yeah, like the patients who are suffering with uh, COVID nineteen, they have symptoms like rhinorrhea, which is a running nose, and also they state the smell and. And also they said one more thing, uh, they have written under symptoms like confusion. I don't know what they meant by confusion. That sounds, it, like, it sounds like yeah, I've, been, I've been having COVID-19 <laughs> for the old brain. Actually, I might be like the earliest case. I think I've actually Maybe had, decreased had brain function. 2014 when I got my first kid. No, but I, I think it's a, actually I think confusion is a fairly common uh, viral res viral uh, response to viral diseases. Really? Uh, it's not something you talk so much about, but it's actually pretty common, especially about, among the elderly. Um, so one sign that people at elderly care home elderly care homes have influenza could actually be that they start to become confused rather than you detect a fever. Uh, so if it have to, happens all of a sudden, uh, so I think. I'm not so surprised about that that would be a symptom of COVID-19 either. I think it's more of a common viral response from the mm. human body. And it probably only affects a quite small number of people or a small proportion of the infected. But mm. with COVID-19, we, we keep hearing about all these weird symptoms that happens in just a subpopulation. And they are reported as a big thing. Yeah, I was going to say one more thing on the ACE2 receptor. Mm -hmm. I did a little bit of Googling. 
Mm. And it turns out that it might not be fully essential, but it seems like it's, uh, let's see what they said. They've been uh, knocking the gene out in mice. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have problems with the vasoconstriction. So, oh, um, mm -hmm. you, you, I mean, you get a pretty def defect phenotype, although it might mm -hmm. not be deadly. Yeah. Uh, but on, on the other hand, in the same paper, or maybe it was a paper citing this paper, they talk about this as a possible therapeutic option still. So I guess mm -hmm. you could have a drug yeah. that maybe not fully inhibits ACE2, but mm. partially does it or something. I mean, it's mm. the fact that it's essential does not mean that it's not druggable, mm -hmm. if you see what yeah. I mean. If you just do a partial inhibition, but yeah, then there's some smart biochemist who has to design that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what we have biochemistry. <laughs> and uh, since COVID-19 is such a fascinating topic, let's discuss some viral evolution as well in the same context, because what, we have, what we've seen in this outbreak is an unprecedented sequencing effort of viral genomes. I think there has never been a virus that has been sequenced as much uh, in such a short time. And... The vast number of coronavirus strains that now are being sequenced have made it possible to start assessing more global questions around its spreading pattern. And, and this has, seems to have started to rewrite its early history in both Europe and the United States. Um, and most of what I'm going to talk about now come from a preprint that was published in late May. What they've essentially done in this study is that they have used all this genome information and looked at the mutational patterns within these uh, these genomes to try to discern some early theories about how the virus emerged in different parts of the world. And they specifically focus on Washington state in the United States and on uh, Germany and Italy in Europe. And the Washington state outbreak has by some people been blamed on an early import strain called WA1 and then quite a number, large number of weeks later, I think it was four or five weeks later, you had a larger outbreak in Washington state and they were like, oh, we didn't, we, we couldn't contain it. So it must have silently spread in the population. And then what they do here in this study is that they uh, look at the, the viral genomes from Washington state that have been sequenced and they take this, this first WA1 strain, the first strain that was sequenced from Washington, and they make a simulation study where they do forward evolution of this one in a number of different ways using the parameters we know about the SARS-CoV-2 virus evolutionary rates and mutational rates. And they also put this into a simulation of that, that simulates the transmission chain. And the cool thing that, that comes out of that is that in none of their simulations I, I don't remember. I think they did a thousand simulations like this. None of them have this first strain coming out as the strain causing the second wave of cases. So they say that it's ex extremely unlikely that this, that this first strain that was imported first and detected first was the progenitor of these other uh, later strains. Rather, they say it's much more likely that they were imported separately at some completely different event. Um, and then they do a similar analysis in uh, Italy and Germany, where you have this uh, Bavarian outbreak that was uh, one of the early European outbreaks. And they say that it's also similarly extremely unlikely that this Bavarian outbreak would actually have seeded the Italian outbreak 
based on the available genome information. Now, that is actually being supported by, an ind by independent observations now, which are not in this preprint at all, uh, but where they have detected the novel coronavirus in sewage from Italian cities in November and December last year. Uh, so it seems like the virus has been in Europe since late last year. Um, and this is also being backed up now in other places, like in, um, in Sweden, where you had something in December that was an undiagnosed pneumonia in Dalarna. Um, and nobody really knew what it was at the time. They just assumed that it was like an influenza with uh, unusual presentation of symptoms or something like that. But looking backwards, at the patient descriptions, it looks a lot like we could have had our first COVID patients in December in Sweden. Um, but that this outbreak probably never spread outside of that local community. And there are now, there starts to be quite a few of these examples where you can see that you've detected the virus in sewage. Because the interesting thing in Italy is that if you go back to October and September, you don't find it. So it's, it's not like we find this all the time uh, and it's a clear, false positive, it's really, it seems to be specific that it came into Italy somewhere late last year. There was, I think, another example in Europe as well, it could have been maybe in France. France also had this patient uh, in, the 2000, in December 2019 who got um, diagnosed uh, now in late spring with COVID-19 using PCR. Uh, so there is a pretty strong case for that there has been several import events rather than that these early events that det were detected were the ones that actually spread the virus further in Europe. So this, I think it's the, the paper itself here might not on its own rewrite the entire history of COVID-19, but it builds to a narrative that tells us that maybe this has been among us for maybe not a lot longer, but still a significant bit longer than we initially thought. And of course, at that point, it would be very, very easy for the virus to spread in the community. At the same time, in my mind, that also means that it can't be that infectious and that deadly because then we would have detected it much earlier. So that was one of the applications where I wanted to talk about sequencing. The other pretty cool implication is a study that was published in Science Advances in late May, um, where they have been looking at other coronaviruses and how those co compare to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And the really nice thing that they do here is that they look at uh, pangolin viruses and bat viruses and compare them to each other. And there's a few things that fall out of this study. And the first, the first observation is that the currently sampled uh, coronaviruses from pangolins are too divergent from this novel coronavirus to be its recent progenitors. Um, but those sequences contain a receptor binding motive that can most likely bind to the human ACE2 receptor. Um, and while there is a bat virus that is the most closely related coronavirus sequence in animals to the current coronavirus that we're <laughs> that are spreading now, the SARS-CoV-2 virus has a different receptor binding motive from that closest 
bat virus. So what they suggest is that they've had, you might have had this recombination event between pangolin viruses and bat viruses. And I saw a paper just the other week looking at caves uh, where pangolins um, where, where pangolins live and looked at which kind of species of bats do co-inhabit those caves and do find that there is co-inhibition by quite a few different bat species in these pangolin caves. So there is ample opportunity for this kind of interaction to happen somewhere at some point. So what they say is that it's plausible that this bat-like coronavirus or bat coronavirus has somehow recombinated with the pangolin coronavirus given the progenitor to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, and this is plausible also because there's evidence that the SARS and MERS viruses also have undergone some kind of recombination event in animals before jumping to humans. So it's not a particularly new or uh, far-fetched thought that this would be true also for this new virus. And they also say that there is serological evidence that there have been spillovers from other coronaviruses in China. So, I mean, these spillover events probably happen every now and then, but usually they don't get, they, the new virus doesn't get a foothold in the human population the way that SARS-CoV-2 did. So what, what we have failed at doing so far is to find this definitive link between an animal carrying the SARS-CoV-2 virus and humans. So we don't know what species this comes from, while we have a pretty good picture of where it comes from with SARS and MERS. And what they do say that it might be that we never, um, we'll, we'll never detect that if this recombination event was quite recent and therefore the SARS-CoV-2 virus maybe never caused a widespread infection in its natural intermediate host, but maybe it actually got to humans quite quickly after that, and then humans were the host where it sort of, it, where it, it sort of became domesticated to humans. So there's a lot of speculation towards the end of the paper, but I sort of like the entire idea that they have with comparing these different viruses to each other and looking at the regions within the genomes that could potentially have undergone recombination. And, uh, this receptor binding motive is a really clear example of something where it can't possibly be the same virus. I mean, you, you look at the plots they have from their alignments, and no, it's definitely not the same virus. Then whether it's actually the pangolin receptor that has recombinated into that is perhaps open, an open question, but it's definitely not the bat virus receptor anymore. Uh, I'm thinking like, how would you even recombine the single-stranded RNA? I, I, I don't understand how that could happen. E even given that uh, these two different viruses needs to be like physically on the same location, and maybe that could happen like from bat guano or something like going on a pangolin or something like that that's infected. Sure, that can probably happen. But then they need to both be either in the lungs or in the nasopharyngeal space or something like that. And they also need to get their genomic uh, nucleotides into the other virus particle or like into a host cell, but then you would need to in be able to infect that host cell as well. Yeah, but that wouldn't, that, that, that wouldn't be so far-fetched, right? That you have a co-infection by two different coronaviruses at the same time. If they are able to um, get to actually, and if both of the different viruses that contain these two different receptor remains as you described can enter the cell, definitely, then I agree with you. But how would you recombine that? 
that's 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 a molecular biology question I don't have uh, an answer to. Yeah, sure. I can I can see how this entire chain, given the amount of virus particles and the amount of man, animals and everything, I can see how the the chain of infecting the same cell in some host somewhere doesn't seem implausible to me. But how the actual mechanism for how these single-stranded RNA viruses combine recombine? I have no clue. Yeah, because I mean, recombination in a lot of DNA is that you need to ha- you need to have one strand that is always connected, uh, so you don't just cause this double strand breakage that ruins the entire genome. How do you actually get that when you only have one strand? It's I don't know. Uh, it's, maybe it's, it is a good question, and I bet someone has a has a good answer to it because yeah. there there's apparent uh, it's apparent that there is recombination in stranded RNA viruses. Yeah, of course. But how it's how it's happening, I don't know. But we, we could potentially look into that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, let's, let's try to find an explanation to that. Yeah. We will next discuss the relationship uh, between the lung microbiome and the disease outcomes in cystic fibrosis patients. Uh, and this discussion will be based on a study that was published in, mo- in the journal Microbiome in April this year. Emil, what do you have to say about this, this paper? Well, uh, first and foremost, this, uh, this paper, when I was uh, looking about on the internet, uh, really caught my eye because this is very close uh, to the discussion that I have in my thesis, uh, where I dis- discuss the potential of, uh, that uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a pathogen that is very closely associated with um, with the mortality in cystic fibrosis patients, uh, is capable to, of invasion, the, invading the lung microbiota. But I say that the lung bi- microbiota is not as well defined. So this is a paper that could elucidate some potential factors that were that could uh, affect the 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 availability of Pseudomonas aeruginosa inside of the uh, lung microbiome. So that's why I chose this paper, and I thought, I thought that it was kind of cool. Uh, so uh, first and foremost, the authors of this paper describe uh, cystic fibrosis as uh, as a uh, a morbidity in uh, in humans that causes uh, the loss of uh, exhale volume, uh, and they define it something as forced exhale volume, uh, which is the ability of exhaling a large amount of air and they use that as a proxy for how far the disease has progressed inside of cystic fibrosis patients. So if you have a lower forced exhale volume, you are more further along progressed uh, the, the disease itself. And if you have a larger forced exhale volume, then you are not as progressed. So what they did is that they took a large number of, uh, of uh, sputum, which is the the mucus from uh, the lungs, and they isolated all of the DNA inside of that. And they uh, then sequenced the 16S RNA of the the sputum isolates. And from those, they then uh, approximated the amount uh, of the 16X ribosome onto a species. And they then correlated that to the amount of species onto the forced exhale volumes and see if there was a correlation between uh, both abundance of different uh, microbes inside of the sputum and also to see if there was a dominance effect as well. 
uh, and dominance is uh, defined as the uh, if there is a larger abundance of one particular uh, microbe inside of that particular sputum. So what they found was uh, actually I thought really really cool. They they stated that uh, a a a larger uh, forced exhale volume is very clearly correlated with a large microbial biodiversity. And uh, a lower forced exhale volume was clearly correlated with domination of five species of uh, pathogens that are very common mortality agents in uh, people with cystic fibrosis. And these five uh, pathogens were Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is really uh, interesting for us because a large abundance of Pseudomonas aeruginosa will then mean that uh, for worse outcomes. But it was also Staph aureus, Burkholderia cupacea complex, uh, your favorite, Johan, which was Streptophytomonas maltophila. Stenotrophomonas maltophilia. Yeah, your favorite. And also H. influenzae which are all uh, common uh, lung pathogens and causative agents of pneumonia. So that was really cool that they uh, found that uh, diversity of the microbiome is a bulwark against uh, pneumonia. Do, do, uh, do they find that though? Um, well, they, they correlate. Or... I mean, okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, because you could also think that the diversity is going down because one of the more opportunistic pathogens take over sure sure you see sure. what i mean and that and that could be what's driving the sure, diversity but loss yeah okay sure so I, I wonder if they do if they do ever discuss the alternative hypothesis that disease is reducing they the don't. diversity they, don't. they just state yeah. that the dominance of these five pathogens are uh, indicative of further progressed uh, cystic fibrosis disease because I, I, I must say I'm not super surprised by that. It's nice that they can show it, mm-hmm. but I'm not super supri- surprised by the fact that um, path- pathogen dominance is related to lower diversity. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same principle as you have with like overgrowth of Clostridium difficile yeah. in the human yeah. gut, right? I mean, you get a lower diversity yeah. and then... At the same time, you get a higher dominance of a single uh, non-wanted species. And I guess that in that case, it's quite clear that the the lower diversity comes first, which gives the opportunity for uh, C. difficile to to grow and take over. Um, Or like Sedimoster can also in our case, that they, they would need to... Uh, that they, in order for, I'm just thinking purely from like my my point of view, that they need to actually invade other uh, areas of the lung in order to actually establish this dominance. And if we can somehow prevent that, then we can increase the uh, the um, good outcomes for cystic fibrosis cystic fibrosis patients. Yeah, I mean it. It would be interesting if there is a protective effect of a lung microbi lung microbiome. Mm. Um, to infection, and uh, it it wouldn't at all be an unreasonable hypothesis. It's just that when when you're doing correlations, you're actually uh, you're right, you actually don't know yeah exactly. uh, what is and, what is yeah. the hen and what is the egg yeah and that's of course that's a that's a um, what do you say uh, a a fault with this particular type of study that you can't actually maybe do those those 
predictions that you might want, but this is what the data that you're working with currently. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's a problem that you have with studies where you can't control only a single variable. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, you, it's fine to do a correlation if you have modified one variable and you know everything else was the same. The problem here is that there could actually be a number of different paths that they have taken to this specific uh, lung volume or lung lung capacity so i think i think it's a very nice paper i i i I didn't i didn't mean to criticize it harshly it's just (laughs) that it's i I miss a little bit of a discussion from both those perspectives like what would it mean if it's instead the pathogen coming first and the diversity then dropping how is to, to join with this earlier discussion? How is cystic fibrosis patients uh, doing in terms of COVID nineteen? Oh, I actually haven't looked at that number. Was but there I anything on that in your paper, Avila? No, I haven't seen that term at all. <laughs> it just seems like it would be one of the like mm. severe risk, risk groups, but I actually haven't seen it specifically no. mentioned. I've seen a lot more with uh, asthma. Yeah, and that, but uh, that was a pretty poor. Yeah, poor uh, uh, correlation yeah. of worse outcomes. It, in it, it seems like asthma is not one of the worst risk factors, at least. Yeah. Uh, and Maybe s- there and is I've also seen a little bit like both narratives when it comes to smoking. Like some mm-hmm. studies have suggested that smoking is actually potentially a bit positive and others have suggested that it's a risk factor. So it, it, seems, it seems like there's still a lot of unknowns. And I think yeah. it, it's interesting to think about it in this context also because cystic fibrosis is one of those diseases where you have big emergent problems with antibiotic resistance. Um, and if a secondary infection of COVID-19 is bacterial lung, infl- um, lung infections, then cystic fibrosis patients are probably uh, not in the, in the best boat. Yeah. Let's move to our last topic on today's pod, which is actually antibiotic resistance and antibiotic resistance selection. Uh, We will ask the question if less is more uh, when it comes to antibiotic resistance selection during uh, therapy. And this discussion is based on a paper that was published in mid-May in PLOS Biology. Uh, And to be perfectly clear already from the beginning, this is not a paper that investigates therapy. They do claim that there are implications for antibiotic therapy, and I'll return to what I think about that after briefly describing what they're doing in this paper. Uh, So the entire paper builds upon that if resistance is already present in the bacterial population that you're treating, then removing the drug-sensitive cells uh, removes the competitive barriers to the resistant cells to grow. So if you already have a resistant subpopulation in, in the um, organisms that you're treating, you, that would make it easier for the resistant population to quickly outgrow the susceptible one and um, overtake the entire system and could potentially lead to a faster treatment failure than if you would use a lower dose of antibiotic that don't kill the sensitive cells as fast. That's sort of the rationale behind this study. And they do find a few potential situations where 
this type of treatment strategy might actually make sense. Uh, so for example, if you know already from the beginning that um, resistance is present in the, uh, in the population you want to treat, then it might actually be possible to exploit this competitive um, the competitiveness between the sensitive population and the resistant population. They call this a containment strategy, and that strategy aims to maintain as large a proportion as possible for, of sensitive pathogens uh, under a clinically acceptable threshold. And this clinically acceptable threshold is maybe the most controversial part of this, because for a lot of diseases, there wouldn't simply be a clinically acceptable threshold. I mean, there's, you want to really get rid of the pathogens. Uh, but I do see that in some situations where you have like a slow chronic infection, for example, uh, and you know that at the moment the patient is immunosuppressed, um, but so controlling the infection for as long as possible until the immune defense kicks in again, might actually be an option. It's a bit of a convoluted argument, but you could imagine that being a situation somewhere some, at some point. One interesting thing here is that they are essentially operating at sublethal concentrations of antibiotics in most of the experiments they do. And uh, at the same time, they acknowledge that the sublethal concentrations are likely to select for antibiotic resistance still. So the, my, one of my first thoughts on this paper was like, have they really accounted for submix selection? But they do have count, accounted for sub-MIC selection. So they, they're, they're, they are definitely thinking about this. It's just that it's hard to really find a good clinical use for the outcomes. And what they find is actually kind of astonishing. Uh, so they, they build a computer model for how the resistant subpopulation and the sensitive subpopulation would behave with different clinically acceptable, well, I, they call it like a treatment failure cutoffs. Uh, and they, they put this treatment failure cutoff as a certain OD that the cells can't pass. At that, when they pass that point, they say that, okay, this is clinical treatment failure. failure. Um, and, how, and, all, and how analogous that actually is to a real treatment situation, I will leave to another time. Um, but if we accept that premise, then they can actually change this treatment failure threshold and look at if you have a low threshold versus if you have a high threshold and what happens at different uh, combinations. And what they do is that they make sure that they mix a sensitive population with a resistant population. And the resistant population is to begin with much smaller. Then they have a control where they put in an equal amount of sensitive bacteria in one control and an equal amount of resistant bacteria in the other control. And of course, then the resistant population will be growing on its own from a much smaller state than the sensitive one. And they have an elaborate system here where they dose this experimental system with the same amount of antibiotics in all three compartments, despite that they also have a flow-through system. So they, they sort of look at the, the mixed compartment and they set the antibiotic level based on that one, and then they modify the other two antibiotic levels in relation to that, so they can look at exactly the same concentrations in all three replicates or in all three treatments, I should say. And they build a computer model for this, and the astonishing thing is that then they do this in E. coli, and they basically reproduce this model down to not perfect details, but almost. Uh, so the computer model behavior is very similar to the real system. 
Um, and what this indicates is that if the treatment failure cutoff is low, that is, if, if, you, if, it's, if you quickly reach the population density that would cause a treatment failure, there is no benefit of trying to contain the resistant population. But if the treatment failure cutoff is high, so that there is actually some wiggle room where you can try to control the population, they see that the time to treatment failure or the time to when the resistant population takes over is actually a lot longer in the mixed community than for the resistant community on its own. And they also see that you can essentially rule out mutational effects. The mutational effects are much, much smaller than the effects of competition between the sensitive and the resistant population. So from that point of view, it's actually a pretty cool study. Um, my main concern with this is that I have a very hard time seeing this being applicable in patients. And I also see that even if it would be applicable to some extent, or you could, you could imagine a clinical study on patients where you try this kind type of a containment strategy versus an eradication strategy. The problem is I don't really see who would like to join for the experimental therapy because at the point where you would use antibiotics in this way, it's usually for quite severe diseases. So it's going to be mostly, I think, a theoretical argument for now. Um, but it's interesting to see from a theoretical standpoint how you can actually have a competition between sensitive and resistant strains that are otherwise identical. Um, so these competition effects that I've been talking quite a bit about in environmental systems, because in environmental systems you have interspecies competition quite a lot, and you have interspecies competition as well between different strains. Uh, and we think that's important for selection processes. And what they show here is that even if you just have a difference in resistant versus non-resistant, you see these competitive behaviors. So to some extent, I would say that this paper validates our thinking around environmental settings, um, but whether it is also clinically useful, I'm not so sure. I mean, couldn't there be some clin maybe of clinical applications? But couldn't you do the same theory if you do it in like veterinary use and like uh, in cattle and in like livestock as well? So you don't need to. So you can because the, from my understanding is that there is already a large population of, resi of resistant uh, bacteria inside of uh, livestock. So you could maybe use that theory there in a larger extent compared to a human application. I guess it also depends a little bit on what you mean when you say that there is a large population of resistant bacteria because i think if you look globally at the population of animal pathogens there is a quite sizable chunk of that that is antibiotic resistance at the same time i'm not so sure that you will get co-infected by a resistant and a non-resistant strain at the same time and that's also why i think that this entire paper is a little bit theoretical because Either you have a mutation early on in the process so that you get a resistant and a non-resistant one. And then I sort of buy the reasoning, but that's going to be a hard case to detect. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. how will you know when to apply this type of theory, theory instead of an eradication therapy? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, because the other, the other possible outcome, which is quite likely, is that everything is resistant from day one. And then their strategy also don't really work. So, I mean, there's, there's three different scenarios. One where you have all susceptible, then eradication is best. One where you have all resistant, then none of the strategies work. And then you have one where you have a little bit of resistant and most sensitive. 
But that situation in terms of a pathogen is not going to be that common. And it's also going to be really hard to detect that this is the situation we have, especially if you're also going to say, bring in the complication of that. If the treatment failure comes early, then their strategy is not good either. So it's, it's hard to see when you're going to be able to use this strategy in actual treatment. Um, but from a theoretical point of view, and again, from like the environmental perspective with competition and everything, I think that there is something to it from a more evolutionary ecolo ecological perspective. Yeah, it's cool, but not applicable. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what you mean by applicable, but not clinically applicable. Yeah, 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 yeah clinically app applicable. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I like that people are doing these kind of studies. Uh, I think that it's, it's important to understand the options say that they would have actually discovered that in all cases this is better and it performs well also when you have all resistant bacteria um then yeah why not just do it their way but in this case it seems to be more complicated and then i don't think there's a very strong case to change clinical practice Um, so in the fall, when we're back, we are hopefully not going to dedicate almost an entire episode to COVID-19 because I hope that it will have magically go uh, disappeared at that point. But maybe that won't happen and maybe we will have to discuss COVID-19 again. Maybe when this is all over, we can discuss it from a pure scientific perspective, which will actually be a very, very pleasant experience, I think. Uh, looking at it in hindsight will be hopefully nice. Anyway... As I said before, we will be back again in August with more discussions on science and life in academia. Until then, have a great summer, take care, and stay healthy. This pod was hosted by the Bengtsson Palmer Lab at the University of Gothenburg. If you have any questions or comments about the content of the pod, you can either direct message us on Twitter at Bengtsson Palmer as one single word. Or you can send an email to podcast at microbiology.se. If you like what you're hearing, uh, you can go to the podcast store where you find podcasts and give us five-star reviews. We love five-star reviews and we haven't gotten that many yet. So please keep them coming. Thanks a lot for listening.